Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, I have to be honest. When I planned out this series on Revelation, uh, this was one of the most uh, more exciting talks that I was uh, looking forward to, and I may or may not have set it up so it would coincide with the national elections that are coming up over the following week. Revelation 12 and 14 are all about unmasking forces. These forces are often hidden in plain sight, and so the veil of familiarity often meets us, and so we need books like Revelation to call us to the true and real of what's really going on. There's a lot going on in these chapters and a lot of symbolism, and we'll try to work through as much of it as we can, but I want to give you an overview because I think these chapters have everything to do and everything to say to us with how we respond regarding the political conversations and structures of our day. In Revelation 12 through 14, we meet the unholy trinity. It's the antithesis of the self-giving love that is shared between Father, Spirit, and Son poured out for all the world. Rather, we find the self-aggrandizing, blasphemous, and exploitative dragon, and the beast from the sea, and the beast from the land. So in order for us to understand what John is illustrating here, we will look at each of the three creatures in turn. But first, we're going to look over at Revelation 12. In Revelation 12, John narrates the story of the church as it enters into a cosmic battle with the dragon. The dragon is identified here as Satan, as he makes war upon the purposes of God and upon his people. Revelation 12 describes his defeat in subsequent casting down from heaven, where it says of his activity in Revelation 12, verse 12, Woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath because he knows that his time is short. The evil dragon here is the source of all evil. He's the source of all deception, the father of lies, as he's called elsewhere by Jesus. There's a difficult conception of power for us to grasp in the Bible. And I want to unpack this just for a few moments because I think we'd struggle to understand because it's a really reasonable question to ask. If God is in control, if he is sovereign over all, then why does he allow these forces that are contrary to his character, to his will, to his purposes, why does he even allow them to exist? And so this brings us to a very complex but very important question about how power is distributed, how power is authorized in the perspective of the scriptures. So let's look at a couple of things here. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus encounters Satan in the wilderness. And Satan tries to tempt Jesus saying, bow down to me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Now, it's instructive here that Jesus doesn't rebuke his claim, saying, well, you can't give away that which is not yours, Satan. But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say that in response or in rebuke, which would suggest that Satan has the authority that he claims to have. Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 2 refers to the ruler of the power of the air as the spirit of disobedience. Peter describes the devil as a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. The scriptures definitely witness to the reality that Satan has power 
real and destructive power. So this is one angle of the conversation. And at the same time, the Bible narrates the power of God. The scriptures speak of his unshakable kingdom. Colossians 2 verse 14 says that Jesus has nailed the powers and principalities to the cross. Ephesians 6 describes how the people of God are armed to withstand the powers and principalities with the armor of God. And furthermore, the Bible resists a sort of yin and yang dualism, as if there's this balance that needs to be uh, ushered into the universe between the equal forces of good and bad. No, the Bible says that God, in His goodness and in His love, is always over and above, more powerful, stronger than the forces of darkness and death. So you see the dilemma here. What are we to do with this tangled mess? How do we understand the nature of power as it operates in the world that we can see and in the world that we can't see? A couple of suggestions here. First, we stand and we rest secure in the image of God revealed in Jesus. How does Jesus approach sin? He pays for it with his very blood. How does Jesus approach the demonic and the evil? He casts them out. How does he approach darkness? He shines his light and the darkness cannot overcome it. How does he approach lies? He says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and he exposes them. And how does he approach death? He conquers it. As we've seen in the book of Revelation, Revelation paints these soaring and glorious visions of the resurrected Christ, Revelation 1, Revelation 5, in order to meet Christians in the midst of very real pressure and suffering. The churches that John writes to in in Revelation chapters 2 through 3 are dealing with all sorts of pressures that are similar to the kinds of things that we face in our daily lives. Whether it be things uh, that are pressures to conform to the general pattern of society. Whether it be pressures to return back to a way of life, of, of bondage. Whether it be pressures to worship lesser things than God. These are the pressures they're facing and they're very much the same as the pressures that we face in our own day. And what does Revelation present to those very real and very hard pressures to conform? The image of Jesus. What this is suggesting is that exactly what we need in order to sustain, in order to conquer, to overcome, is a vision. A vision of the Jesus who has already overcome the world. So we can rest secure in that image that Jesus, as he reveals himself, is truly revealing the Father, that God is speaking fully and finally in his Son. Second, the way that Jesus reveals himself and his kingdom has everything to do with the mystery of power in our own world. If you have ever read the Gospels, you see that throughout Jesus' life, People misunderstood him frequently, especially as he began to hint that he would die. In a moment, Peter says, no, Lord, you will not die. And Jesus says to Peter in rebuke, he says, get behind me, Satan. People misunderstood the way that Jesus was becoming king. But the way that Jesus becomes king has everything to do with the kind of kingdom that he's bringing. Jesus reveals God and overcomes sin and death on the cross. Revelation 11 invites the church into Christ's victory by inviting us to share in his suffering. And it's through that suffering, not in spite of it, not ignoring it, but right 
all the way through it that we declare as the church and we participate in the victory that Jesus won on the cross of Calvary. So just as it seemed that Jesus on the cross was losing, he was taunted, he was mocked, he was left for dead. But in reality, as we know the fuller story, he was really winning. He was really telling us to take heart for he has overcome the world. Revelation 13 verse 7 says of the beast that we will meet in a moment. The beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. But in Revelation chapter 12 verse 11 it also says, But they, meaning the church, the ones who follow the way of the Lamb who was slain and resurrected for all of the world, they have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not cling to life even in the face of death. And so in response to this tangled question of power, even though in our day and in our life, even when it seems as if we are being taken advantage of, persecuted, trampled upon as the people of God, this is the exact moment that we are enacting the victory of Jesus. In our own day and age, the church in places like China and Iran has been hard-pressed from government and cultural forces. Uh, If you've ever seen the documentary Sheep Among Wolves, it depicts the women who at great risk to their own lives and to the lives of their families lead the Iranian church. And they focus, these women, as they lead the church, on simple obedience to Jesus What does the Bible say and what am I going to do about it? They take him at his words and they try to make disciples even though it might land them in prison. It might cause them to be assaulted or even killed for their faith. And the church, as these women are living out this beautiful life and faithfulness to Jesus, the church in Iran is exploding. Contrast that with the church in America where many, especially in the days of coronavirus, are shouting about their rights. Many are seeking political power and supporting political figures whose character and whose actions are so far removed from the example of Jesus. We can't always be sure how power is being distributed in our world, but what we can be assured of is this. Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of God. He has trampled over sin and death by his blood. And we as his people participate in his eternal victory by allowing his life to become our own. So even when it costs us dearly, Ecclesia, even when we lose our rights, the Bible commands us to lay down our rights, not to demand our privileges, We, in carrying our cross, follow the one who carried his cross once and for all. And after the dragon has been unmasked in Revelation 12, the one who is the source, the father of all lies, the author of all evil, in Revelation 13 we meet the beast, who it says in verse 1, rises up out of the sea. The sea, in this kind of literature, is often alluding to the forces of chaos, the ocean as this unknown and mysterious place. And so this beast rises up out of the sea. The beast here is symbolized with markers that would have alerted the original hearers that what John has in mind here is nothing short of the very Roman Empire under which they all live under its reign and rule. John levies a scathing political critique of the Roman Empire who claims all powerful sovereignty in the world and builds its kingdom through exploitation. 
The beast features horns of power and seven heads with crowns, which would signify the seven hills that Rome was traditionally founded upon. The beast is marked with blasphemous names, claiming authority and worship for itself that belongs only to God. And the beast is given power and authority by the dragon to rule. The first beast signifies imperial power. Manifest destiny, that which kills, steals, and destroys in order to secure its empire. The first century Roman Empire promoted the idea of the Pax Romana. The ideal that there had never been an empire like Rome in the history of the world that had brought peace and order to the whole world. The Romans brutally and ruthlessly maintained this order, crucifying dissidents and funding a military machine, at least until that point that the world had never seen. But from the perspective of the empire, all the people that they had conquered and subjugated, all they had to do was to get in line with Rome, not question its authority, not question their actions or policies. In exchange, they would receive a nice, peaceful life. John unmasks this power for what it is. It's a tool in, in the hands of the dragon to subdue and to, to deceive. Look at what Revelation 13 verse 4 says. It says, They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Or, asked in our very modern parlance, What nation is like America? John then turns his attention to the third member of the unholy trinity, the beast that comes from the land. It says that this beast had horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon in verse 11 of chapter 13. The image of the lamb has already played such a vital role in Revelation as the image ascribed to Jesus himself. Jesus, the new Passover lamb who has overcome the world, forgiven our sins, liberated us by his very blood. So the third beast, being portrayed as a lamb here, yet speaking like a dragon, is, is designed to cause our alarm bells to go off. John is signifying, look out for this beast. It will come high, hidden in the guise of religion. It will be a wolf in sheep's clothing. It will seek the affections of all your heart and all your soul. This beast performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of all. And by the signs that it is allowed to perform on behalf of the beast, it deceives the inhabitants of the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This is Revelation verses 13 through 15. The beasts from the land, like the magicians of Pharaoh's court in Exodus, can perform signs similar to the wonders of God. There's a story in Kings when Elijah encountered the false, encountered the false prophets of Baal. Their God was not strong enough to consume the sacrifice with fire from heaven. But John says here that the beast is endued with such power that this beast demands that uh, we have to be a people who are discerning. Because this beast can throw down fire from heaven. So it demands discernment and wisdom because the beast is the propaganda machine of the empire. 
The churches that John was writing to were in locations where the emperor would often have been worshipped as a deity, as a sort of god walking the face of the earth. And the imperial cult, a, a, a sort of civic religion built up around this, would have demanded Christians participate in civil liturgies, giving worship and allegiance to the state and to the empire. This is why John mentions the mark required to engage in commerce. No, it's not some barcode that will be given to all the world at the end of time, sorry left behind, or it's not a vaccine that will be given to people in a conspiratorial way, sorry crazy stories on the internet. It's simply referencing the fact that Christians refusing to participate in civic ceremonies of allegiance to Rome would have been seen as suspect by their neighbors and by the local authorities. And for many of them, they would have been ostracized socially, which would have made it harder for them to get jobs, harder for them to barter with goods. And also, a real quick note on the number 666. Perhaps the most famous number in the history of the world. Supposedly, it is the number of the Antichrist. Though that phrase is not at all used in the book of Revelation, that's a phrase from the letters of John. Some scholars suggest that that number is likely a coded way of referencing the Emperor Nero, using a process called gematria, where you assign each letter in the alphabet a numerical value. The number 666, uh, or actually some manuscripts have the number 616, but that's not as fun, uh, actually comes out to say something similar to Nero Caesar. When Revelation 13 describes the beast being wounded in the head and making a miraculous recovery, this is likely an allusion to a myth that was present at the time in the first century that Nero would return after being dead and he would return from the dead and lead an imperial horde, the Parthians, from the east and that they would conquer Rome. Again, Fake news is not just a 21st century phenomenon, right? People were circulating rumors and stories in their day. I personally, I'm, I'm somewhat convinced by the Nero theory, but I do think the number is simpler than that, especially in regards to the, the sense that we've been discussing these, these unholy trinity, this dragon and these two beasts. 666 is one short in every way of 777. Three sevens in the symbolism of Revelation would symbolize a Trinitarian perfection, whereas three sixes would signify a, a threefold imperfection. Whatever the number means, the presence of the beast is a powerful invitation for us. And the way we encounter the government in our own day and age, the beast of the sea serves the dragon, which is the great enemy Satan and demands all-encompassing worship. The beast of the land is the propaganda machine tangling religious impulses with affection for the empire. The point that John is trying to make here is that our allegiance is in fact a zero-sum game. We cannot buy the story of empire exceptionalism and at the same time be faithful to Jesus. Our witness as a people will call us to live at odds with the empire's claims, and this will be a primary way that we engage in the cosmic conflict with the forces of darkness. Look at what it says in Revelation 14. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. 
They have been redeemed from humankind as the first fruits of God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found. They are blameless. Then I saw an angel flying in the mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every tribe and nation and language and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The number, 144,000, is symbolic as a military number. The Lamb is their leader, their general, their guide, and they are sealed with the name of the Father written on their foreheads, and there is no lie found in their mouth. Just as in Revelation 1, Jesus was marked as the faithful witness. When we follow the ways of the Lamb, we are blameless. We walk in His ways. We speak the truth to the world. You think about the age that we live in. The age of fake news, of an endless onslaught of information in general. The age of the attention economy. What we see from Revelation 12 and 14 is so vital for living as a faithful people who follow Jesus in this moment. Our nation, as we approach this election, feels as if it is at a crossroads. Polarization, inequality... Anxiety, despair are all running at what seem like all-time highs. Members of both political parties have, brought into, have bought into the propaganda of their own vision of the future. Their version of the beast of the land saying, look at what Donald Trump or look at what Joe Biden will do to make America great. But what I'm certain of is that neither fully represents the values of the kingdom. Now, this presents us with a very important question. Does this mean that we need to check out of politics altogether? Well, I don't think it's that simple. You see, I used to subscribe to a more Anabaptist understanding of political engagement, especially as I understand it. It basically says mainly that Christians are to engage the state by avoiding its structures and where at all possible. So, like, if you have to pay taxes, well, you have to pay taxes, but you don't necessarily need to participate in the civic processes like voting. But our call is to live as prophetic witnesses uh, with words and actions and by creating an alternative community. Many Anabaptists do not vote in elections, and I have to be honest, for me, that was a fairly comfortable political position for me to be in. And especially as it regards national elections, the Electoral College, I lived and I grew up, my first opportunity to vote was in the state of Oklahoma, which is one of the reddest states in the Union. And now I live in New Jersey, which is one of the bluest states in the Union. So just logically, I was like, well, does my vote really count? Not exactly, right? But despite my comfortable position that I have arrived at, the more I talk to my pastoral colleagues in disadvantaged places, so whether they be small towns left behind or urban centers, the more I realize how much policies directly affected people's lives. You know, I had a sense of privilege because I, I wasn't so uh, desperate or wasn't in such a state where a vote would change one uh, fundamental element of my life or would change my access to certain things. And I had to understand that that was a place of privilege for me. Now, a couple of things. The first century disciples did not live in a representative democracy. They did not have the level of agency that we have. And so in many ways, we have to take 
the principles of their witness and apply them in a different way. What Revelation 12 through 14 shows us is that no matter who we vote for, there is a level to which we have to resist buying into the all-encompassing nature of the conversation. Whomever is the president, whether it's Trump, Biden, or Nero, we are called to live as people who recognize the empire for what it truly is. You see, we've made a mistake in our culture when we think that voting is the ultimate sign of our virtue. And what then begins to happen is, because we attach ultimate meaning to our vote, then even when it becomes apparent that the person that we voted for has either not fulfilled their promises or is going about keeping their promises in really dehumanizing and damaging ways, what it prevents many people from doing is being critical of the, the person that they originally supported. And so we often get tangled up in this web and then we are uh, spinning stories in so many different ways to try to uh, somehow jive with our vision of reality. But our call is to be kingdom people. And so oftentimes we need to recognize the vote as a limited application of our political witness. And that should take some of the pressure off and it should allow us to be people who are prophetically critical of our political leaders, even the ones that we voted for. And so what we've seen, especially since 2016, is that the two camps have further retreated, and especially those on the right. Those on the right have spun narratives in support of the current president that frankly are often dis disconnected from reality. An entity that demands allegiance and worship has to be resisted by the people of God. This means that we, as people participating in the political process, have to treat our political convictions, our po political conclusions, like, like sort of a dangerous attack dog. When the dog is trained and put in the right order, they can bring about safety and fairness for others. You think about the police dogs that are trained. But, but if we fail to properly train the dog, we might, may find ourselves consumed by the ferocity Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a prophetic witness for this kind of engagement. He fought for structural changes. He fought to see the Civil Rights Act passed. Uh, he, but he was not a one-issue voter. He didn't stop when discrimination was criminalized in our country. No, he went on to speak of the effects of unmitigated capitalism, the Vietnam War, and our impact on the environment. In a speech about the Vietnam War, Dr. King said to a group of people, he said, I must be true to my conviction that I share with all men calling to be a son of the living God. Beyond the calling of race or nation or creed is the vocation of sonship and brotherhood. Because I believe that the Father is deeply concerned, especially for his suffering and helpless and outcast children, I come tonight to speak for them. This I believe to be the privilege and the burden of all of us who deem ourselves bound by allegiances and loyalties which are broader and deeper than nationalism and which go beyond our nation's self-defined goals and positions. We are called to speak for the weak, for the voiceless, for the victims of our nation, for those it calls enemy, for no document from human hands can make these humans any less our brothers. Prophetic words from Dr. King. Ecclesia, 
We are called to be a discerning and wise people, convicted and brave. We are called by Jesus, the one who died for us while we were still the enemies of God, to love our enemies, to speak for the weak and the voiceless beyond nationalism, as Dr. King says. We are not beholden to our nation's goals because we have a different agenda, that of the kingdom. We are citizens of Jesus' eternal kingdom. Jesus has marked us with the name of the Father and with the blood of his nail-scarred hands. So the question remains, should we engage in politics? I would say yes, in a way that protects and brings flourishing, in a way that acknowledges the limitations of our institutions, in a way that understands that our institutions can often be an instrument of the unholy trinity. We should engage in politics in a way that causes the world to see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. Ecclesia, I want to urge us, yes, to be a people of peace, but not the kind of peace that just reverts towards a kind of passive middling, towards a centrism that we think distances us from the ramifications of political engagement. But I want to call us to be a people who are brave, a people who, despite our chosen political convictions, despite the way that we see the world, are always pursuing the way of Jesus in the world, are always humbly listening. You know, when I think about the way that Christians vote, let me just offer one principle that I've been thinking about quite a lot recently. You know, when Jesus gives of his mission to a group of people, he gives it to the church, Paul writes of the church that we are his body, the body of Jesus on earth. And I think of so often how we, we have this impulse to be united. We know that the church, as Martin Luther King so prophetically critiqued, should not be the most segregated hour, Sunday 10 a.m., should not be the most segregated hour in our country. We have this sense of what should be. But often when it comes to politics, we leave all that at the door and we become individualists. We become people who are not beholden to anybody else, but we simply vote the way that we think and see fit. But the principle I've been thinking about, and I haven't fully fleshed this out, but what would it look like for the church in America to think about who are the most historically marginalized in our body, who are the most disadvantaged in our world, and to say, you know what? I think that you know what is, at, what is at your best interest. I think that you are in tune with what would be best for you. And therefore, because you are voting in a certain way that expresses things that are important to you, I'm going to join my vote with yours. I'm going to say that you are completely capable of discerning what is best for you, and I'm going to join you in saying that I'm going to use my small amount of privilege and power to say this is in agreement with your conclusions. That the way you're voting will not just be the way that you're voting, but it will be the way that we are voting. What would it look like for us in the spirit of Philippians 2? To, you know, as Jesus, uh, Paul writes of Jesus, he says, though he was in, in equal status to God, that Jesus did not regard equality with God as something to be held on to, but yet he laid down his rights and his privileges. How small of a thing would it be for us 
to say to our neighbors in different contexts or to say to our neighbors in our own church community, what would be best for you? How can I join you in that? With something as small as a vote, because as we've talked about Ecclesia, our vote is such a small, a, a telling but small imprint on what it means for us to live as a witness in this world. We have to get on with the business of being the people of God. Even with our chosen leaders, we have to be people who are willing to see them as instruments of the unholy trinity and be people who criticize, be people who are willing to live differently in such a way that it might cause friction between the stated goals of our nation and the stated goals of the kingdom. Jesus says that this is the way to come out of the empire. This is the invitation that we'll see later on in Revelation. Come out from the imperial place. Come out from the imperial agenda and see that vibrancy and life are found only in being a part of the people of Jesus. So, Ecclesia, we are at a pivotal moment for sure. But what we see is that no matter what, We are called to be a faithful witness. We are called to be discerning and wise and to see how these principles play out in the practical ways, in the costly ways of discipleship. So I want to invite you, church. Join me. Join me as a people, as we live collectively, bearing witness to the kingdom that is already and not yet, the kingdom that is coming, but the kingdom that we are called to live as a witness as we live on God's mission in the world to bring all people to see the beauty of His Son, Jesus. Let us be a people who truly live differently and embody a different kind of politic. Let us be a people who see our political structures for what they are. And let us be a people that no matter what, come what may, are relentlessly pursuing Jesus' faithfulness and relentlessly pursuing it together. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.